Welcome to the Florida Institute for Child Welfare podcast. This series is Child Protection Caseworker Support. I am Jessica Price, your host. On each episode, we will explore topics that are relevant to child welfare professionals. We will hear directly from people who work every day to make a difference in the lives of children and families. It is our goal that this podcast is accessible, informative, and supportive. So if you know someone who works in child welfare, be sure to share this podcast with them. Today on the Florida Institute for Child Welfare podcast, we are discussing racial equity, taking the blinders off. Our guest today is Corey Best, a family engagement specialist and a proud and devoted father. Corey spends much of his time educating our child welfare workforce on being color conscious. He encourages each of us to do the hard work of discussing racism, acknowledging differences, and having full awareness of our families and their stories as we make decisions. Let's get started. Corey, thank you for being with us today. Thank you for having me. So yeah, Corey, I usually start off by asking what got you involved in child welfare? What, what's been your road, your path to where you are professionally? Well, you know, when I, when I think of the road or the journey, it's, uh, it's, it's multi-paved way that I've gotten here. Uh, I believe that child welfare overall is uh, synonymous with community welfare. Mm. So one, I am a, a member of a family uh, who, who grew up in the context of community and a greater society. Uh, as a as a child, I was not exposed to the child welfare system myself, so I understand child welfare from a prevention perspective, most part. And, and I utilize that I'm defining prevention as primary prevention, not simply prevention of kids coming into care. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what what actually got me involved in the work is I'm a single parent. So, you know, years ago, I needed some resources, just like any other parents. I reached out to a local early learning coalition in Florida when my son was about 18 months, and they invited me to sit in on a collaborative meeting to discuss what was then known as family involvement, mm. where you know, over the years, it's definitely morphed to to, to where we are now, it's uh, more about authenticity, uh, looking at relationships before services. So a decade or so ago, we focused on uh, what families needed to do to increase their protective factors, not what systems can do to partner with parents in promoting robust protective factors. Right. And I remember that you mentioned you went in for help, you know, as a single parent. How was that experience for you? Well, I mean, you know, I have a, I have a worldview like so many others that, that men uh, should be providers, omnipotent, strong, and never show weakness. Mm-hmm. So at that particular time in my life, it wasn't overwhelming. Uh, and that was mainly due to the brave soul and how she approached me. Her approach was very non-judgmental. That created uh, a pathway for me to build, uh, become vulnerable, and open up 
and the support that I needed was sort of uh, in between paydays, right? Mm -hmm. Diapers formula, mm -hmm. right? I mean, something very, very basic. Yeah. However, it led me uh, on a path to something much greater, and I had no idea Mm -hmm. uh, that that would be basically the genesis for my community organizing work. Wow. Yeah. So Corey, we've interfaced in many different arenas over the last year, and I've very much enjoyed working with you tangentially and directly with our um, previous symposium. But I didn't know that part of your story. And I think that it has just kind of um, it really shows why you're so passionate about parent engagement. And especially when you just said you went in for help as a single parent and that person was non-judgmental. Because I feel like when I hear you talking in circles, that's one of your themes, non-judgment, you know. And I think it's now it's written. I'm realizing why that's so um, why that's so ingrained in you. So I appreciate you sharing that. Oh, definitely. And, you know, the feelings uh, mutual. I have a lot of uh, respect and admiration for for your work as well. I think that we, and I say the collective we because I, I fall or I actually live in, in bias-driven behaviors myself sometimes, and I have to, to really pull back and evaluate why I am I'm behaving a certain way mm -hmm. based on a family's uh, situation, dynamics, beliefs, value system that may not align with mine. I think we overlook the fact that being non-judgmental is, is very subjective. However, it is something that is so elusive yet trans, transformative. Uh, similarly to the concept of hope. Uh, hope at its core is believing that the outcome is indeed possible. possible. So if we as a system uh, say or live the value of hope, I believe that families will feel that energy because it is indeed a causative energy that helps one to propel themselves to something better, mm -hmm. higher, and also have power and support in doing so. And some having the ability to drive their own lives. Right. Uh, and, and, you know, and I think it's us as a system to, to be able to tolerate mm -hmm. sharing that power mm -hmm. and understand that, that families typically have the answers and may need just a little support as we all have needed right. or will need in the future. Yeah, I love that. I love um, what you said about if we come in with the hope, it will be a causative you know, effect with the families we work with. And I don't think that, you know, when I was on the front lines, I wish I would have heard that before because I think I would have came in, you know, showed up differently for my families. In a sense, I always felt, you know, encouraging to them and wanted to motivate them to do better. But I like the, the way you talk about hope, you know, instilling in them that I, I believe that the outcome that, you know, you're looking for and what we're requiring of you is, is actually possible. So I really like that, and I, I hope that the listeners um, definitely take that to heart. Um, Corey, so to the listeners, a few weeks ago, we had a racial equity symposium here in Tallahassee, and Corey was our day one keynote speaker. And Corey, I just wanted to hear from you. How did you um, feel about the symposium? What were your reactions, takeaways? Well, you know, overall, my experience uh, over the two days were absolutely amazing my key keynote aside 
the, the quality of the presenters, day two keynote. What I felt in, in that space was a sense of relief. Mm. Uh, that is one way I describe walking away from that environment. Mm-hmm. And I say a sense of relief because of the topic of race equity. Uh, going into the symposium, <clears throat> I was quite eager uh, for multiple reasons. One, we are in Florida, <laughs> and, <laughs> uh, and 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 you know I've I've been given authority to speak my truth, and I believe that you know Florida is is a state that's known for discrimination, oppression, and also living in uh, the sort of this mentality of the dominant worldview mm-hmm. of, of whiteness. And to see uh, a state university support uh, such an effort to begin having the conversation about race head on, things that often are uh, hidden, mm-hmm. to bring the hidden to the visible and make that uh, a safe space for us as participants to grapple with emotions, to grapple with misunderstandings, and to also uh, acknowledge what we don't know about race relation, tension, uh collaboration specifically through the lens of child welfare is what was so intriguing Mm -hmm. uh for me yeah no thank you for the your reactions and feedback um the symposium one thing that i appreciate about the symposium is the diversity of the people that came so Corey, one thing i uh a friend of mine came to the symposium and 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 they heard your keynote and uh you you made a statement that they asked me about, particularly because of the work that I do. And I know that we, we have um, two very different kind of methods of um, addressing race equity. And I think that there's a level of appreciation for both of our methods, but I'm, I'm really into, I wanna talk about color consciousness today because the statement that I um, got from your keynote was, um, blind processes are the antithesis of race equity. So I wanted to ask you, um, because there are some jurisdictions that are using blind methodology and things of that nature to address disparity, and I wanted to hear your thoughts on that. And then hopefully that leads us into color consciousness, which I know is your preferred and really what you think is the way toward race equity. Yeah, so this is, uh, I I appreciate that when when I made that that statement, that is still uh, my fundamental belief because I, I personally believe that, and, and there are some social justice advocates who would support this, that I believe that in order to solve or create a new system, mm-hmm. not necessarily fix uh, white supremacy or to uh, tweak around the edges of a, a dominant system or worldview, we must know exactly what it is we need to do internally to get there. And one way of doing so is to see people. Uh, there's a body of research that supports my argument that there is no way possible 
for us to be colorblind. Like we see physical attributes when we look at people. And often we attach stereotypes to those physical attributes, which drives bias. My uh, preferred method is to uh, feel the, the angst, the tension, the emotional strings, uh, and confront racism head on first by acknowledging our fears about people's otherness. Mm -hmm. When we can look at uh, a child welfare investigation, uh, I, I say it's antithesis to race equity because it's sort of like a just juxtaposition, right? So in jurisdictions that are utilizing blind case plan, case plan reviews, in one sentence, it's saying we are combating disparity. On the other hand, it's saying we're using blind methodologies to achieve race equity. Uh, I don't feel that race equity is achieved by anything blind. That's quite antiquated, and it also falls into supreme, supreme, supreme world worldview, meaning that uh, overall, we can continue to devalue a person based on their otherness. We don't have to see their color, and therefore, we devalue a group of individuals. Mm -hmm. I haven't met a person that identifies as Black that has personally uh, not valued their own uniqueness, nor do they want to be seen as anything other. Uh, so I think that the colorblind methodology is, uh, you know, it is supreme thinking in and of itself. And the other piece of, of that is that if we are, if we are blind to uh, a person's culture, race, history, diversity, beliefs, values, faith, and all of these things, how can we then make sound decisions based on the safety of a child if we are not looking at the parameters of that child, looking at the dynamics of that child? Mm -hmm. When jurisdictions are implementing this particular process, it's a technical solution. The numbers decrease. Mm -hmm. The numbers, not deactivating biases. If it were used as a tool, I haven't seen evidence that say when 25 people come around the table, make a decision on if the child should be removed or not, then if there's a removal, we have to see color. We have to be able to assess the family. We have to look at the domains of the protective caregiver capacities. We have to look at the, the, uh, the, the information surrounding the maltreatment. We have to be able to see what is safe or unsafe about the family's dynamics. How can we not do that Blind. I mean, how can we do that blindly? Thank you, Corey. And I wanted to say that what I got from what you said was maybe the method should really be a hybrid. So if you're going to utilize blind removals, okay, we've we've blinded the foster care decision, but what happens next? Is there accountability? Are there are the blinders off? Are you really seeing the families at that point? Um, so maybe uh, there should be some research done on some type of hybrid method. I don't have the time, but do you, Corey? <laughs> yeah, I'm going to I'm going to pencil that one in. <laughs> <laughs>
So, Corey, again, um, when you talk about our families being seen, are they being heard? This is leading me to what you also discussed about courageous conversations. Can you talk about courageous conversations and, and what makes these conversations difficult to have? Sure. You know, I, I'll just picking up on uh, the, the notion that or, or the reality that we uh, collective we again can look at two cases similar strengths similar di dynamics uh two different zip codes same maltreatment we make different decisions based on uh, what we see and the more i talk with case managers investigators i do a, the bulk of my work is like with organizations right so I rarely do work with families unless there's focus groups, community cafe. And what I'm, what I'm seeing is we don't know why that is on the surface. But when we dig a little bit deeper, provide an, an analysis of racialization, give a history of quote unquote undesirable kids uh, back in the day where we were utilizing orphan trains and we use terms such as kill the Indian, save the man to assimilate and colonize individuals. And then we came up with the child welfare or child protective system to support families in a different way. Most of my work today is done post 1964 Civil Rights Act, right? And that has given us an opportunity for us not to be overtly discriminatory to other people. So it's tough to have conversations when the law says we can't call people, we can't be overt. And what that does is it gives white America an opportunity to say, I am not overtly discriminating against another human being, so therefore I am not a racist. And I'm not on a racist hunt myself. I think we're all born into the system and it's hard to understand how we perpetuate it if we don't get the analysis, meaning the education, uh, the common language. Once that's established, the conversation takes a, takes a turn. Uh, the reason why I feel that the conversations are often tough to have uh, which are courageous, is it leaves us vulnerable. Think about colorblindness for just a moment, and you think about racist, racism at the same time. So many Americans feel that individual acts of racism that people commit, that defines them as racist. Uh, where the definition, you know, we think about a system, racism is a system of oppressive and discriminatory acts that keeps one, that benefits one and, and not the other. So the playing field from the beginning was never leveled. And to level that playing field, to be perfectly honest, there are no real tangible benefits for white America to achieve equity. So the conversations are tough because once we see where our stereotypes are that are in conflict with our organizational and personal values, we then have to acknowledge that I have attached 
something not so good to your skin color, right? And, and, and once I see that, I can't unsee it. So I, therefore I have to do something about it and it's quite tense from a personal perspective on, I, I wanna be able to get along with everybody. I wanna be able to treat everybody equally. I wanna be able to be fair with everyone. I believe in equality and that equity that everyone should get the same access to things and that that will uh, help people grow. Uh, the, the courageous conversations really require open-mindedness, a willingness to examine oneself based on the environment that's inclusive of diverse perspectives. Mm-hmm. Um, it with respect to advice or, you know, some methods that we could be giving to case managers that might be listening in. Are you saying that these courageous conversations should be done at the organizational level or between a case manager and a client or a family on their caseload or both? I'm going to say there's a, there's an and both. Uh, so just to give some tangible tips to uh, case management and any organizational leaders that are listening in today. Uh, one, I believe that anyone who touches a family at any decision point has an opportunity to exercise leadership through their value system. I believe it starts with values. Uh, from a worker, so to speak, a worker practice is to have the ability to name it, uh, but be very mindful uh, because I'm an individual as well. I'm human. I inherited the system just like all of us who's listening in. I can recognize your biases, Jessica, before I can recognize my own because that's how the world taught me to find out what you think about things before I think about them myself. So it's critical to understand uh, our individual biases, beliefs about groups of individuals and recognize that, you know, we have been racialized. We categorize ourselves based on race. Uh, It's really no way of getting around it, but how we work, play and partner with parents, there is definitely some tangibles that we can utilize. Uh, we have we have adopted in, in in Broward County a set of guiding principles, uh, guiding principles for organizations that help them guide the work. So from an organizational level, I will uh, suggest you know extracting, experimenting with uh, one or more of these values, and I'll just run them down, and then I'll give you some worker uh, tips as well. But one is to continue. Uh, the institution and structural analysis of of race, racisms, and race equity. Truly understanding what that means and how your organization fits into the world view and the the world construct. Respectfully confronting, and this is both for uh, worker and organizational practice, confronting and naming racism. Uh, We rarely name it. it, it took seven months, six or so months before we actually could say racism in a race equity work group, uh, which <laughs> so uh, and, and the the courageous partnerships with families begins by understanding how your organization uh, has oppressed families, how the 
uh, the policies are aligned uh, to to minimize alt optimal child development or family strengthening, uh, rigorous self-assessment. This is a, a daily, monthly check-in, rigorously assessing your organization for equitable practices, meaning looking at the data, clearly understanding the variables behind that data and how your staff plays a part in perpetuating the outcomes and if those outcomes are indeed, uh, again, aligned with your values. Uh, that is rigorous. That is ongoing, nonstop, continuing. It's sort of like a recovery plan, right? Like daily inventory of oneself. I think that having an accountability partner internally, I would suggest that every child welfare worker build a healthy relationships with at least one confidant, someone who they can share their shadow side with, someone who they can build trust with, someone who they feel comfortable enough with saying, I don't even understand how to work with black and brown families, but I need to learn. Someone to help them, a safe space, uh, and it happens within the organization. I think we target uh, also the distribution and the opportunities for resources and when we're uh, co-creating case plans from a, a worker perform a, a worker perspective are those supports culturally sensitive you know are we providing mental health services to families who are predominantly black and are we giving uh, referring them to a predominantly white uh, mental health you know clinician whether private or public I think we create new ways within the organization to a talk with one another. Uh, again, this is exercising leadership. Chapter 39 doesn't, you know, it, it, it could be left up to interpretation, but it says whatever's in the best interest of the child. If we know that in today's research, the best interest of the child is with that primary parent, even if it's a little messy, are we looking at people's color and indicating, hey, is this the best interest of the child? Because if I am removing uh, because of environmental, meaning community environmental uh, variables, is that the, the best decision? Even if there's no safety concern inside of the home. Uh, I think that we also uh, need to help one another make decisions harder. In our current practice, in our current practice, it's really easy to allow intuition to uh, determine a child safe or unsafe. Yeah, and I like what you just said. Is it, I think you said, is it intuition or is it fact? And one thing I wanted to respond to that is perhaps there are facts about a family and there is maltreatment, but like you alluded to earlier, research is showing that kids that stay in their maltreated homes are faring better than kids who are removed. So I'm not an advocate for keeping a child in an unsafe environment, of course, but depending on, like you said, community, context, and family strength and resources needed, a lot of these things are material issues, material need. A child, I like what you said, even if it's messy, um, I think if we shift our paradigm to not consistently separating families, um, we might have facts, but we should still contextualize those facts. Just because we have a fact of something that happened doesn't mean the child should be separated. So yeah, I just wanted to respond to that because I think it's a good question to ask, but not 
at face value, fact or intuition. And Corey, I know we're running low on time, but if you have uh, just a few more minutes, I wanted to hear from you about, um, I know you're doing a lot of things uh, for families, your parent advocate. What's most exciting in your realm right now? What are you enjoying the most? What seems the most promising with respect to child safety, family well-being, race equity? You know, there, there are, this is, you know, and I never thought I would say this, right? This is really an exciting time in child welfare. So even though, you know, we talk about race and racism, it, it you know, I feel this pervasive gloom in the air, every conversation. Uh, but what's most exciting is that aha. Like when I, when I get the aha and when I see others get the aha, regardless of what it is, but specifically about how systems have done some things differently to keep kids in their homes. Without an overabundance of resources and formal services, but really grappling with messiness. Uh, what's also exciting is to see systems and individuals increase their tolerance for risk. And what I mean by that is in order for us to truly go further upstream and begin for, for child welfare to begin to come to the table with a different set of resources that could support families even before maltreatment occurred is huge. So I'm, I'm optimistic, but in order to get to that point, we have to tolerate some things. Florida's front door for entry is wide open. Like almost everything goes. And that's just a system that we haven't really asked questions as to why is that? How might we close this front door? What does community protective factors look like and how can we magnify them? Uh, I think that research in the qualitative realm is also exciting because uh, it, it helps me understand what people think, feel, and how they behave uh, within the, the confines of community and child protection. Uh, there are uh, so many others that are definitely exciting, but I, I'm most looking forward to uh, my child feeling the impact of my and other uh, like-minded individuals that have deposited blood, tears, and sweat into this uh, movement. So I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic about the future of child welfare. And I, I truly believe that the, the work begins with the worker. Uh, <laughs> so definitely. Um, I wanted to say just to wrap us up, uh, those that are listening, I hope that this conversation was helpful to really do a deep dive into parent engagement, parent advocacy, race equity, thinking about different methods that you could use in your organization, especially leaders that are listening to this, um, administrators and organizations. I really appreciate the advice and the consultation from Corey. I was in a meeting a few weeks ago and they, they said, um, we've spent too many years trying to keep kids safe from their parents. It's time to keep them safe with their parents. So we should start shifting that paradigm. I'm also excited about the future of child welfare. Well, I want to thank Corey again for being with us today. 
What a great discussion about parent engagement and working towards race equity by being color conscious. To learn more about Corey and his work, please visit us at www.ficw.fsu.edu. I end each podcast with a thank you to our child welfare community. Thank you for your commitment to this work, and we hope the podcast was helpful. I want to acknowledge Aaron Kuja, our podcast engineer, and Mariana Tutwiler, the producer of this series. Until next time, I am Jessica Price, and we are strengthening child protection by providing caseworker support.